we just gathered up seven families or so who just happened to spend a lot of time together and said, okay, let's be more intentional about this. But it wasn't, everyone's going to move here. It was, let's just intentionally spend more time together. And then the goodness of that became apparent. And so people began to actually pick up and move. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. I'm your host, Ryan McDermott. I'm a professor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and faculty director of the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship, inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. In this episode, I interview Katie and Brandon McGinley. The McGinleys are part of an intentional Catholic community that is settled near each other in the Brookline neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Brandon is a Catholic writer with a book forthcoming in June about how to make vibrant parish communities in the future. That book is called The Prodigal Church, and it comes out in June from Sophia Institute Press. Katie is a self-described retired librarian who now is a full-time homeschooler of her kids. In this episode, we talk mostly about how their community got started, how it developed, what new forms it might take after they are released from the COVID-19 lockdown. Lots of great stuff here, especially if you are trying to figure out how your family can not only have a thriving prayer life at home, but one that intersects with other families who are your friends and and neighbors. So Brandon, in the previous issue of Plow Quarterly, you had a piece that I think was read widely across the country about your neighborhood community. This was a special issue. I think the theme was community. And Plow Quarterly is the publication of the Bruderhof, who are an intentional Christian community that have their roots in Germany after World War One. They're part of the Anabaptist tradition, and they have a now their strongest presence in the U.S. and and actually a very strong presence outside of Pittsburgh. And their students are living in Pittsburgh, going to Pittsburgh universities, and so you all have been over to the Oakland Bruderhof house, right? For, for dinner and things. And did, did we see you at a sing-along recently? Yeah, it was the, um, the lantern walk. Right. Yes. In the autumn. Yes, exactly. It was a beautiful day in October. Yeah. And they asked you to write a piece about your own intentional community. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. The topic of the issue of the magazine was in search of a city. And so the point was to try to articulate a Christian vision of the city, which then includes the idea of community. And of course, our community exists within the the city of Pittsburgh. And so I wanted to articulate something that was, well, first of all, the true story, but that took the idea of intentionality a little bit differently, rather than thinking of it in the way that it often is with everyone's getting together and signing documents or something and making it official in that way. The intentionality was more light touch. It was affirming things that were already happening. 
So taking the organic growth of friendship and then saying, how can we take this to the next level? And so the beginning of our intentional community was really friendship, but uh, was friendship and then saying, how can we be better friends? So it wasn't taking a bunch of people who were interested in community in an abstract way and then coming together and forming that community. It was taking people who were friends and then layering community on top of that or letting community develop organically based on the trust, the intimacy that was being built naturally in our friendship. When did you realize that you weren't just living in a neighborhood, but you had some special kind of community there? I think it was when people began to decide to move to the neighborhood in an acceleration of the plans they had for their own for their own families. And so you know, the first family that moved to Brookline, they were looking to move and they found a house that they liked in a neighborhood that they liked. We were next. We weren't looking just in Brookline to be close to them. That was just a bonus. And we liked the house. It was three blocks away. And that was, like I said, that was a nice bonus, but we weren't just looking in Brookline. But then that kind of got the ball rolling. And another family who was also planning on moving for a long time, it's like, well, two families are there, then we should focus our looking there. And that's what they did. And, and so then you had three and then another family moved and they already had roots in the neighborhood. So that was easy. But then after that, you started to see folks who were choosing to move well in advance of when I think they were planning on or they were, they were very satisfied in the situation and, but realized they would be more satisfied being even moving just five or 10 minutes away from where they were currently living so that they could be within a walkable proximity and for the, you know, for the growing boys and, and girls, a bikeable proximity. And so that was when we realized that something was happening more than just people who tend to hang out together. And, and we, we accelerated this a little bit on our own whenever we had uh, something of a family meeting, when we just gathered up seven families or so who just happened to spend a lot of time together and said, okay, let's be more intentional about this. But it wasn't, everyone's going to move here. It was let's just intentionally spend more time together. And then the goodness of that became apparent. And so people began to actually pick up and move. And so these are families then similar age with kids around the same age. Like, yes. What would you say the age range is in terms of the, the parents and the kids currently? I think that the youngest of the parents just turned 30 and the oldest is pushing 40. And the kids age uh, range in ages from just turn 10 or the oldest to uh, babies, tons of babies. So, <laughs> How many kids are there total? Do you know? <laughs> I have lost track. It's something like, oh, well, it depends on how you count it. You know, there are the kind of, there were the, the seven families who originally joined, uh, kind of joined forces or whatever. And there's what, like 30 kids there, I think now. And then, but then there are other families around. So when you add up all the other families who have now at, who have now moved to Brookline or who are already here. And we just kind of have, have um, tried to integrate probably have like 50 kids, 10 and under or something like that. I don't know. I, it's to the point where you can't have everyone in the same place at the same time. <laughs> right. Katie, was there a point when, when you looked around and said, huh, like something's happening here that is, that's different and that we now have to start being intentional about like what, what, when did that, shift in thinking happen? That's a good question. We It all sort of happened pretty quickly. Um, we moved here 
And within a year or so, I'd say, um, we started realizing that this was more than just like, hey, we all kind of live on the same side of the city. Um, the fact that a bunch of us were just in such close you know, walking distance of each other even, which I've never lived in walking distance of friends before in my life. So that was really novel. And so it sort of got us thinking about, yeah, sort of making more of a kind of a formal arrangement, but more like realizing like this is something we should purposely cultivate and kind of work on. I imagine a lot of this came through the moms because I think in most of these families, maybe all the moms are kind of stay staying at home with uh, and not working outside the home and the dads tend to work outside the home. So what kinds of organization did you find the moms doing? Like what, what, what did you, when you had to kind of say, all right, we need to be a little, we need to be intentional about this. What did that look like? Yeah. Well, it sort of has shifted some because as our kids get older and more of us are formally schooling our kids, it's harder to just say like, Hey, we're just going to go to play date four days a week. You know, there's more and more of us have had to kind of reach the point where it's like, actually, we need to stay home for at least, you know, part of the morning. Um, whereas when my kids were really little, I could just say, like, we're gonna, you know, take off and go, um, you know, spend the day at someone else's house, or they'll come to our house or have kind of organized play dates. But we do more like spontaneous dinners with friends. If I realize like, hey, you know, we have you know, enough to feed like tons of people in the crock pot right now. Like, why don't we just invite some friends over? And it's been a lot of, there's been a lot of, not, you know, in recent weeks, but a lot of kind of spontaneous dinner parties, or it'll say, we'll say like, Hey, when your kids wake up from nap or whatever, when you finish schoolwork, come on over. And then, you know, we'll just sort of go from like a play date into dinner as the dads finish work, they'll join us. So that's been really helpful. We do a lot of Aldi runs for each other. Like, you know, I'm going to the Aldi, I'm going to Trader Joe's, going to Walmart, whatever, like, does anyone need anything? That's really helpful. And then um, kind of swapping childcare as needed, too. If someone has a doctor's appointment or a date night or something like that, kind of swap around. So the kind of, like, large-scale family planning intentionality, like, here's where we want our family to be, here's where we're going to buy a house, that kind of thing has actually it sounds like fostered a lot of spontaneity that yeah that you couldn't have if you hadn't made those big intentional decisions so you're not like you don't have like a a once a week like we all gather together at this time and do this thing every week kind of thing it sounds like right we've out have grown that <laughs> it used to be where we could could kind of fit a lot of the families but now if you combine you know everyone has two three four five on up kids that gets to a lot of kids really quickly. One uh, one thing that has been on hold during the quarantines or whatever that we did do, and to the wonderful credit of the people at our at the neighborhood parish, is a every other week Bible study with childcare. And so there were volunteers, and you know, with the way things are in the church these days, it takes reams of paperwork to do anything with childcare. So the outstanding credit of the parishioners and leaders of the parish and of the diocese, they got all the paperwork in, and they have like 10 or 12 volunteers who watch as many kids as show up for like an hour, hour and a half every other Wednesday so that the parents can get together and do a Bible study and also just kind of have grown up conversation. So that's something that is more or less official. It's not, you know, it's not like everybody goes every week, it just depends on people's schedules, but that is a touch point 
that even though not everybody, in fact, you know, a lot of the people in the neighborhood don't necessarily go to the neighborhood parish, the parish still serves as a spiritual and social touch point for us. What do you foresee being, is there like a, a growth ceiling to this community, do <laughs> you think? That's, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the points I wanted to make in the Plow article was that community begins with friendship not necessarily with like a contract. And so that's how this began was with friendship. And there is a ceiling to the number of people who can be effective and genuine friends all at the same time in the same place. So there is a ceiling. However, once the friendship develops into a community, the ceiling is raised. And the way I like to think about it is that, and what I've seen develop completely naturally, and it doesn't mean that you don't have to have a little bit of intentionality here and there. When you see things happening, you can grab them and, and try to make them a bit more official. But what I've seen happening is what I've described as like an impossibly complex Venn diagram of relationships and points of interest. And so like a lot of the older kids, a lot of the older children, in Brookline, among the various Catholic families here, they're almost all boys. The parents of the like eight to 10-year-old boys have a special kind of relationship that other boys are on their bikes all the time. They're visiting each other's houses spontaneously. They're almost, get, they, you know, they're, they're seeing each other more spontaneously than, they're, they're, than the grown-ups are. They have something special. The dads who enjoy playing board games or poker or whatever have something uh, something special that's like a point of commonality, and that's a special relationship. The moms who like to knit and do crafts and things like that, they have a point of commonality. And so what you end up with is some core friendships that have kind of lasted for a long time, but then new emerging friendships around points of interest or just similar stage stages in life. We're all in some ways in the similar stages in life, but the parents of the 8 to 10-year-old boys are in a very distinct stage in life with very distinct similarities. And that's a natural affinity that leads to kind of a natural, kind of like, you know, one circle of the Venn diagram. From the original friendship emerges community. Community could then be seen as that network of friendships where each node isn't necessarily an individual or even a family, but each node is itself a community within a community, a group of friends within the community. And then the final end result is that the community then fosters, further fosters friendship. It sounds sort of like what many people are nostalgic for this 1950s neighborhood parish community, which had definitely its strengths and definitely its weaknesses. But it sounds like what you're talking about is actually more like old time parish community because you're not being intentional in the way that, say, the people of God movement is, you know, this is, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's a, a movement that began in the charismatic uh, renewal of the 1970s. And it was uh, ecumenical. There are a couple of communities in the Pittsburgh area. And these communities meet together weekly on a Saturday night. They have a, a special like sort of Shabbat that they, that they all do together. And then there are various practices that are that are common uh, and, and specific to the, I, I guess you would say the the specific charism of this of this group. And and you know if you go to Ann Arbor and join one of those groups there, it's going to be very similar to the one that you have here. But that's not that's not what 
you all are doing. It's more like you're trying you're you're trying to create those very dense networks that are kind of parish community. Is, is, would you say that that's kind of the idea? Yeah, and- I, I like to think it's flexible. I like to think it's resilient. We'll see. We'll see. You never know. I think that's definitely something that we have in mind. You know, we are in one of those neighborhoods that was that way in, that, in the 1950s. The neighborhood parish, Resurrection, now called St. Teresa of Kolkata, was at one point the biggest parish with the biggest school in the diocese. Just an exceptionally dense Catholic neighborhood. Dense in the sense of densely Catholic. And in terms of just the built environment, it's 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 it's, it's there, you aren't meeting with lots of resistances there, right? Like it's it's already been proven you can do this with this built environment. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The built environment of Brookline is like early suburbia. It would have it was called the suburbs when it was developed because it was across Mount Washington and you took the, the the new fancy tunnels to get here. But compared to modern suburbia. We're right, we're right in each other's business. You know, like I can see, I can probably almost touch the wall of the house, you know, through the window over here. Um, and so I, I think it's, we like it. We, we were lucky we have, you know, we have a yard on both sides and all that. But at the same time, I'm very conscious of not trying to model ourselves against a model from the past that is simply not achievable today. You, you cannot have the density of families of Catholics now that you did then it's just not possible we the parish itself is of course extremely different now and so and frankly you know as you said those communities had positives and negatives and one of the negatives was when they became just communities just social structures without the spiritual element the example i always think of is my dad grew up in one of those neighborhoods both my dad and my mom did in pittsburgh different neighborhoods but my dad talks about how in wintertime, the social event of the season was Christmas Midnight Mass. And like the boys would ask the girls to go with them and he would, they would like dress to the nines and buy corsages. And on the one hand, I'm like, wow, how cool. The mass was the center of life. On the other hand, it's not hard to see how that becomes primarily a social function at which Jesus is just one guest among many. And, and then that could just as easily be replaced by any other social function and, in fact, was replaced by other social functions rather seamlessly. And so if you're going to model yourselves on anything, it's important. You know, it's, for me, so much of it is about whether you are talking about medieval guilds or talking about 1950s neighborhoods. It's taking the good from there and applying it to the 21st century. So... Katie, how have things been different since the COVID-19 lockdowns? Like what, what, what would be one concrete way that you're feeling things are different? I've barely left the house. Um, we haven't, we just haven't, uh, yeah, we haven't done either like spontaneous or planned get togethers so much. We've done sort of coordinated walks where a friend will say like, hey, my family's going to walk down your street at, you know, 7.30 after dinner and we'll like stand six six feet away across the fence and like talk for half an hour. So we have sort of, while the kids, you know, bicycle up and down or ride scooters and talk across the fence. So like that's kind of been the extent of our social, like, you know, dinners or playdates or whatever. That's, That's kind of been it. We've done a lot more as a family just because we're at home, you know, pretty much all the time. I haven't set foot in a store in 
six weeks, <laughs> I think. Um, we've been on some hikes, but other than that, I've just been at home and it's been kind of nice in a lot of ways that we haven't done any running around as much. Like the kids haven't had their activities. And so that's uh, like gymnastics and catechesis of the Good Shepherd and homeschool co-op and like all those things. We're just not leaving the house for any of those. So it's making me look a lot more at sort of redesigning our day as a family and how that looks if we're structuring our week around being at home every single morning and sort of what has to change. And it's a good time to sort of look at our routines and figure out what needs to change for the better and how we can kind of retweak the way we kind of structure our our home life as a family. So it sounds like because so much of your community life is spontaneous and now that spontaneity is no longer possible that in a way you've, you have a breather, like you get to actually turn inside and focus on routines at home. And I think, yeah, you, know, a lot you of can't just keep going that. and going and going and then right. realizing like, why am I so exhausted? <laughs> Cause I'm running around all the time. So it is sort of like, taking a hard stop and looking at everything sort of with fresh eyes. It's been nice. Mm -hmm. And then, so what was Holy Week like for you all? You know, honestly, I really liked it. It was kind of the high point of the quarantine for, for me at least, because that was the most distinct week since, since Easter, it's been harder. First of all, because it's supposed to be a celebratory time and it's hard to, to feel that, but also because the, the liturgy gave us more structure, which was good. And so, you know, we did on Wednesday night, we did, we called it Tea Light Tenebrae, which we just did it rather than reading through several Psalms. We just read through uh, one of the, the passion narratives and we extinguished candles as we did that. And the, the kids really liked that. Actually, they asked to do it again, which they usually don't do that kind of thing because it was so dramatic. And then it was like, after it was over, they, we kind of shuffled them off to bed. And so they, they really liked that. And then Holy Thursday, we drove to several parishes and just in our cars prayed in front of the building. It was kind of sad, but it was, it was nice to get out. It was more lovely than I expected. A few had like outdoor car adoration. One parish, uh, one of our neighborhood parishes had the Blessed Sacrament in like the front door of the church behind glass. And another had a blessed sacrament in the window of the rectory. So that was nice, just sitting in our car quietly praying. And it's just, it was nice to, to see Jesus. Saturday was, was nice. We did a little bonfire in the front yard and, you know, did a little kind of truncated Easter vigil thing, reading some of the prayers, doing the litany, the exaltet, things like that. And then, you know, broke the fast by grilling at 10 p.m. And it was, it was fun. And the kids loved the fire and, we had, we had s'mores in the fire. So, you know, it gave us an opportunity. In some ways, Holy Week, I may remember this as one of my favorite Holy Weeks because we had to really go into the liturgy ourselves and, and not, not design it ourselves, but say, what can we work with? Let's look at the tradition. What can we do here that mimics that, that brings it literally into the domestic church, into the home? And it forced us to go deeper. And then, you know, Easter Sunday itself was supposed to be rainy, but it, it wasn't so rainy. And we actually ended up having several families keeping our distance, walked around the neighborhood singing Easter songs. We called it Easter caroling. And some of the older children carried large icons or statues. And we just walked through the neighborhood singing, you know, joyful Easter songs. And 
we finished at the neighborhood parish and just had kind of these awkward distanced conversations where, you know, we were all reasonably young and healthy. So I think we felt like we felt like we probably could have safely been closer, but we also felt like it was important as part of the witness of doing such a thing to also respect the public health guidelines of the, of the community. And so part of the witness of doing that kind of thing was being respectful of social distancing. Uh, at the same time, doing what you can within those guidelines. And so that was honestly, like I said, Holy Week was like probably my favorite week of quarantine. And may, may, I may remember is one of my favorite Holy Weeks I've had. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, one of the few definitions of secularization that I think is actually helpful is, is, uh, is, is that, you know, religion doesn't go away, but what it means to practice and to have religious faith transitions from something that was once more public and communal to something that is now more private and individual, right? And one explanation of what happens in the Reformation is that Reformation sacralizes the household while secularizing the church. And so that would be a kind of, you know, one of these these, these shifts. I actually, you know, I, I think most Reformation historians don't buy that. But I, I think we are seeing a, a similar dynamic here. And it's also a dynamic where if you happen to be a maybe traditionally minded Catholic living in a suburb with a sort of circus in the round parish, and you just hate all that stuff, and you have these ultramontanist impulses that, you know, you just want to, if only I could just not be involved in this white bread local parish, I really like, it's all about uh, tradition and Rome for me. This is the this is the perfect time <laughs> for you <laughs> because you actually can just virtually be there in St. Peter's Basilica having your mass with the Pope. So so it it seems like there are kind of insidious temptations about this, but those temptations and and those dangers nevertheless are pointing to something that's that's genuinely attractive and potentially genuinely good about the domestic church. So how I mean, how do you see these things playing out and and what do you see like once, you know, people talk about once this is all over, but when, once we're, you know, 3 years from now when we're still going back and forth between lockdowns. Uh <laughs> but what is this going to look like? What 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 is the do you think the life of the church for a typical family with kids going to look like? The absolute rosiest perspective is that people will develop uh, an incredible hunger for being back in the Eucharistic life of the church, jump back in with both feet, and continue some of the family liturgical devotions that you know they had a chance to pick up during this time. Uh, that's obviously extremely optimistic. That's probably the best case scenario. I think probably the, the, the negative scenario is that, you know, folks who were already somewhat tenuously attached to the church will probably find that habit broken. That's the biggest question coming out of this for me is, you know, the positive side of it, again, is that this has been a chance to step back and reset and say, like, what is working in my life and what isn't? What do I want my life to look like when things are back to, quote, normal, as close to normal as they might be? You never get this chance to to reset. This is almost unprecedented. Then the question is, what habits do you have, did you have, that you're going to pick up again, and which ones are you going to drop? 
that for me is the biggest question. Are you going to get back in the habit of watching professional football or professional basketball and not get back in the habit of going to mass or vice versa? You're going to get back in the habit of getting a daily latte or maybe not, or maybe, you know, whatever other habits you might have that are just part of your life. To the extent that one's faith life was primarily habitual, there's a real danger there. But we also know at the same time that habits are not per se bad. Habits are what virtues are. Habits are what get us, first of all, what will break down some of our willfulness to not choose good things because we're just so used to choosing, you know, hopefully good things. But ideally over time, you become habituated to the goodness such that you desire the good things that you do habitually. And so... I think that this is an opportunity to then say, what are the habits of my life that are genuinely good, that are habituating me to virtue, and to choose those again, to have an opportunity to choose those again and reform those. But again, that's probably the, um, that's the, the rosiest opportunity aspect of this. You know, one pattern that I, seems to be emerging to me is that if your relationships and communities were already thick and relied on a lot of personal presence, then this is very disruptive. And so going back to normal, we'll be going from a situation of social distancing back to a situation of social intimacy. And if your social connections were not thick prior to this, in many ways, this has become like a kind of opportunity. And so, you know, me and my extended family are a great example of this. Our extended family has never lived close to each other. Like, you know, growing up, they were all scattered all over the country. They still are. You know, my cousins are just as scattered as, as their parents were from each other. And we don't do a very good job of keeping up. It's sort of like there has to be a wedding or a funeral for us to get together. And now in this time when lives aren't as hectic and we have a cultural support for these kinds of virtual conversations that we're having, we're actually spending a lot more time together and we know a lot more about each other's lives than we would have in this other time. What will that look like when things go back to normal? I don't know. It might look like we Zoom some more, but it's not like we're going to move close to, to each other now or start vacationing together. So I guess in the case of your own neighborhood community, which does depend on these thick personal presence relationships, do you see coming out the other side of this? What will be different, do you think? That's a good question. I've been thinking about that a lot because like my family, my extended family and I, or like my family of origin, we've been, uh, my parents and my brother and his wife and some other members of my family, we have been keeping in touch more like, you know, and maybe every once in a while we do like a Christmas FaceTime all together. But now we've been doing like every couple of weeks, a family Zoom and spending more time sort of intentionally talking to each other more. But we haven't seen local family hardly at all, like just kind of a few sidewalk handoffs of Easter gifts and that kind of thing. So I'm not sure. Whereas before the quarantine, a lot of Brandon's family lives within 10 minutes of us. So we'd see them several times a week. And so I'm not sure now that we're out of that habit, what it'll look like as far as picking up exactly where we left off with the exact same kind of routines and shared habits and visiting schedules and that kind of thing, or 
weather will sort of reset more. I know it's it's hard on not just for our family, but any grandparents who aren't seeing their grandkids now are having a really hard time of it. And so I know everyone's, you know, kind of looking forward to sort of getting back to normal in some way, kind of as soon as we can to kind of reestablish those in-person connections, but exactly what it'll look like. I'm not sure. (laughs) Have any new intentions emerged inside the Brookline neighborhood community? Like, given what we know now, we now intend to do X, Y, or Z after this? Yeah. In fact, one of the real potentially long-term positives to come out of this is that we are uh, all going together on developing relationships with local farmers and other places to source bulk food. One friend found a restaurant supply store that sells to individual consumers. And now we have absolutely enormous bags of flour that at, at absolutely unbelievable prices. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to be going together on buying um, a steer from a local farm to get humanely raised beef, again, at very competitive prices. We're talking about pigs and chickens. And at this point, you know, I think there's some, there's some interest among us in actually raising chickens. I don't know if that's going to happen anytime in the immediate future, but, but we're really talking about pooling not just our resources, but at a certain point, you're actually pooling your purchasing power to be able to create a real co-op kind, kind of situation. That This is the kind of thing that had been talked about for years, and you'd have like a half an hour conversation, and then everyone would kind of forget about it for a few months, come back to it. But now the urgency is there. And so, and you're also helping these these uh, you know wholesalers who don't otherwise have have a market. Absolutely, you know, I am not generally optimistic about social trends in just about any circumstance. But one potentially genuine, yeah, one potentially genuine good that could come out of this, as we're seeing issues in the traditional meat supply chain, would be for local humane meat farms or to be able to grow and to thrive and to maybe even develop their own ability to enter the supply chain more than just as a boutique thing. Because even though the per pound price is competitive, you know, I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that for, for a lot of people, the bulk one-time cost is simply not possible. But maybe there's a possibility from innovation here to be able to make it possible. I don't know. You know, I am no expert in this area, but it seems like a possibility for for this kind of thing to become more common. And again, not just a boutique thing. So, Brandon, you're writing a book right now about what will the Catholic parish look like in 30 years, right? Is that is that basically the concept? Yeah, more or less. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of the idea is. What is the church? What is the Catholic family? What is the Catholic parish? And how can we take lessons from those realities and apply them to to our time to create something that, that actualizes that reality better over the next generation? How will your book be different now that COVID-19, you've lived through this? <laughs> well, I wrote it all before. I added an author's note. <laughs> oh, you're finished? Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. I, 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 I hustled through it earlier in the year. And so it should be released in June. You know, it was one of those things where if, if deadlines weren't what they were, it might be a different final product. But the nice thing about it is that it would be only a different final product in mostly superficial ways because the point is a kind of layman's resource mall of what is like I said, what is the reality that we're actually 
we don't we can't know what a renewed church looks like until we know what the church is we can't know what what a renewed catholic family looks like until we have a fuller understanding of what the catholic family is and is supposed to be that doesn't change with pandemics and so i would probably have adjusted a few things here and there and i tried to address that in a little note but at the end of the day i hope the idea is that the the, the topic of the book and the way I address it is distinct and somewhat timeless. It sounds to me like it's actually more timely now than it would have been uh, if it had come out earlier. And Because there's more, you know, at the same time, there's more instability. At the same time, there's more uncertainty. That does mean understanding all of the risks and all of the very potentially serious negatives, including things like I've talked to pastors who talk about how they're donations have gone down 80-90% during this because so much is based on people in the pews putting envelopes in baskets. So that's a like I do not want to pretend like this is a good situation at all for parishes. But trying to be as hopeful as possible with the uncertainty, with the instability, with the uh, unpredictability comes more opportunity for more genuine innovation. That's a, one of the points I've come back to time and time again. Innovation is not the enemy innovation within tradition that is what the church does when she's at her best when the church is at her best she is not archaeologizing she's not trying to recreate some perfect past moment in time she's taking lessons from the past taking lessons from her for two thousand years plus of tradition and applying those to the moment and this moment now quite clearly calls for more innovation than i think people even realized before Katie, what have you been reading, watching, or listening to during this time that you would recommend? I just finished The Noonday Devil, which is the book on Acedia that my book group read in January, and I couldn't make it to that meeting, so my motivation to finish sort of dried up, and I've been just plugging along, Um, but it's... Yes, Acedia is one of those things I've heard people talking about a lot recently. How um, would you define it in a nutshell? For, so it has a lot of definitions or like a sort of a lot of ways that it can be defined, but sort of like a spiritual tiredness or restlessness. And it can be defined. It used to be one of sort of the eight principal vices or sort of sins, spiritual sins you know, like the Desert Fathers talked about it a lot. And then as things sort of got reclassified and recategorized, Acedia sort of dropped out of a lot of the vocabulary of, you know, like it used, it sort of got folded in with sloth. But basically it, it, it was one of those where you're reading it and you're like, oh yeah, that's definitely like, I never had a name for this feeling or phenomenon. It can both lead you to depression or inactivity or just like an over busyness. Like I'm just going to fill up every waking moment with stuff and like busyness and activity just to sort of avoid thinking about, you know, other important things more deeply. So it can sort of be overactivity or inactivity. But as you're reading it, you're like, oh, wow, that's like the root of a lot of my problems, (laughs) you know, as far as sort of spiritual pitfalls go. So that, that was a really wonderful book. And I feel like I need to reread it. There's a lot to chew on. So I feel like I need to reread it in maybe six months to a year. But yes, I, that's, that's my the book I've been slowly working on and finally finished. Great. Thanks. Any other recommendations? Yes. I have also, right, I came prepared. This has been really helpful. It's Real, Real Learning, Education in the Heart of the Home by Elizabeth Foss. And it's about 
it's about homeschooling sort of, but not even, um, like home education. Like you don't even have to necessarily homeschool, but just how the family and the family life is the root of all learning and sort of how to just sort of naturally fold education and enrichment into your family life. And it's sadly, it's, it's out of print. It's one of these very much coveted books that it's now like the list price is sixteen ninety five. but I checked this morning and it's, you can't find a copy for under $50. So if you see it somewhere, snap it up. It's really wonderful. And it's very like gently encouraging, which is what, what I kind of need in my homeschool right now. Well, it's great to talk to you both. Thank you for making the time. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. problem. Thank you. Really All right. Hopefully see you back in mass sooner rather than later. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.